Hey everybody, thank you for listening to this bonus episode from the podcast From Another World. And Dave is looking at a franchise, well, I believe the first in the franchise, of a film series that he's seen quite a bit of. And actually something that I believe that, uh, you know, Neil and I talked about for a second, uh, at least part of the franchise from last week. I hope you guys enjoy it, and thank you guys for checking out another bonus episode of the podcast From Another World. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Can you hear me? Over. Podcast from another world. I am your host, Phantom Dark Dave. Today is July 18th, and I am kickstarting a three episode event of largely influential horror movies. Originally, when I came up with this concept for the show, I was going to focus strictly on B movies and weird sci fi films. Now, before you leave, because that's the only reason you subscribed, hang on, just hear me out for a second, because I am definitely going to be getting back to that. But before I do, I wanted to give a take on three very popular horror films that have been in my mind for quite a while. And today we are going to talk about one very specifically. It's a horror film that ignited a long and ongoing, even to this day, franchise that has a name that is synonymous with horror. It's from 1979. It is the Amityville Horror. It's the kind of house they don't build anymore. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry. When there was still time for a little charm and elegance. It has stood empty for a long while. And at the price, it is a bargain. For a growing young family, it is almost too good to be true. What do you think? I love it. James Brolin, 
Margot Kidder, Rod Steiger, in the Amityville Horror. God's peace in this house. Kathy? Father Delaney, there's something very important. Joining me today is someone who is always up for a horror movie chat. He is the host of the Black Cat Shadow podcast and the creator of some of the greatest podcast music on the planet, making his debut to this show. Please welcome Andy. Hey, Dave. How's it going? It's going good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited for this episode. I'm, it's a honor to finally be on your podcast man yeah thanks for having me oh man it's a, it's always a pleasure to have you on here and look at we're already doing something different because usually when you and i get together we're talking about 1980s horror movies and we've already taken it back one year we're talking about a 79 horror movie you gotta love 70s horror those are some of my favorites as well as 80s i mean there's something about like 70s horror is just like those are some of the scariest movies i've seen i think like I said in the beginning, when I put this show together, I knew I was going to focus a lot on 30s, 40s, and 50s horror, and that's kind of where my heart is with some of the stuff. But if I'm being honest, when it transcended into the 60s, that's whenever things got kind of crazy and they started doing like the hammer horror and the occult horror, and we had all the other versions of Dracula and Frankenstein. But then, like you said, when 70s hit, everything took like a turn. Like you know, you had like Rosemary's Baby and Nice Living Dead towards the end of the 60s. But when 70s came around, we started getting introduced to all these like. Wes Craven films and all these grindhouse films and like I mentioned the beginning of long running franchises and anybody out there with the exception of Nightmare on Elm Street because that was 84 anything that you're thinking of until then in that 10 year span there is a legacy where horror movies are born that may or may not make their debut on this show I don't know we'll see when we get there but yeah, man, the 70s brought forth a new type of horror, and I won't say it saved horror, but it almost showed what kind of horror movies we could have, because it threw us into the desert, it took us to these haunted houses, it got people to go to the drive-in and left them terrified. Yeah, I think there was a uh, an aspect of, like, grittiness that was added in the 70s, and, like, 
they really introduce fears that could actually happen in your life, like being kidnapped or run across some backwoods family or something like that. There, it wasn't just like ghosts and goblins. They introduced like just the human element of evil as well as some of the other things too that we've enjoyed up to this point, like monsters and ghosts and stuff like that. But but they just kind of like really made it gritty and uh, added a little bit of realism, which I think this movie that we're going to talk about tonight really is a great example of that, adding that realism to a, a specific genre of horror. Yeah, and the reason that it feels so real is because this is based on a true story. Now, neither one of us were there, and I don't know about you. I know I've never read the book. Did you read the book that came out? Yeah, I, I did read that one. This is pretty good, pretty interesting, yeah. Okay, without getting too much into it, just personal question. Does this movie reflect the book pretty closely? It does, for the most part. There's some things that that are in the book. That are, there's one scene that I wish was in the movie that would have been really freaky, but they didn't add it in the movie. So it's just kind of a scene towards the end. I mean, it's I don't know if, if you want me to go into it Save or not. It. But, when uh, we get to the end, throw yeah. it in if you remember. That would be awesome. Okay. But yeah. it's funny because I I don't pride myself on reading a lot of books. I, I read more growing up, but now at this age, I just kind of like to watch movies more. But when you mention like, oh, this is the book that the screenplay was built off of, I'm just kind of like, well, I might read that book. You know what I mean? Like some of these classic horror movies oh, yeah. are pulled from something just like the host of um, no, Scott from you know Hellbent from Horror. He used to always tell us and say on his podcast of how The Exorcist was a great book. And I love that movie, but I've never read the book, but I would. Yeah, definitely. I, I've I've started getting into more like audiobooks. I don't know. It's just it's easier. Like when I, you know, in my job I drive a lot, so you're preaching to the I can choir, just, man. Like, listen to audio. <laughs> I drive yeah. all the time. Too. Hey, as long yeah. as you still listen to the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good call, man. I might look into that. Get the uh, Amityville Horror on audiobook. That'd be awesome. And then yeah. down the road, I'll be like, Hey, you go, like, Hey, Dave, what are you doing? I'm like, Oh, I'm listening to the Amityville Horror 23 on audiobook. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's that many films. <laughs> but, uh, all right, man, you're the guest on the show. I love to start with kind of our oldest memories and first-time watches. So tell us, when do you remember experiencing the Amityville Horror? So my first memory is probably, it was when I was a kid. You know, we had a UHF station that would show horror movies like on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. That was a big gateway for me as far as exposure to horror. So my earliest memory of Amityville Horror was I saw this on TV, and I don't know if I don't remember exactly if I watched the whole movie, but I definitely remember seeing bits and pieces of it on TV at that age. And then as an adult, I I watched it again just from that memory. You know that I, I just knew it was a really scary movie, so I wanted to. As an adult, I just wanted to get back to it and. Uh, Seeing it as an adult, and it actually really holds up. You know, even to this day, I feel like it keeps the the scare factor up there. It really does, and that's so interesting that you say you saw it on TV because I had read that originally this was intended to be a made-for-TV movie, and so in a way, you got that experience. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I could see that. I could see it being a TV movie, and like we'll probably talk about, you know, just the the way that the style of movie it is. It's it's more like the the scariness is more subtle and stuff. So there's not like a bunch of like gory violence. Yeah, yeah. There's really not, and maybe rightfully so because I don't know if you want to call it just kind of classy or whatnot. But there are a couple of scenes that I think are a little grotesque that maybe they edited or toned down slightly. But I feel like those are the scenes that they probably added it in 
to make it more of a theatrical release because this was definitely a theatrical release and Dude, I wish I could have saw this at the drive-in. That would be awesome. Like, if they bring it back, oh, yeah. I'm going to see this in theater. Yeah, this would be a good one. Like, any other 70s horror would be good to see in the drive-in because those those movies just have that drive-in feel to them, you know, that, that grittiness that we're talking about. All right. I'm going to tell you about my first memory of this. I remember it was, you know, I saw my first horror movie when I was eight, kind of was polarized by some stuff around eight or nine but it wasn't until those preteen years like right around 10 or 11 that i started i started to really like get into horror and seeking out horror movies and as i always say and i apologize if people get tired of hearing this but when we were growing up there was no streaming so if you can only watch it if you saw it on tv or if you sought out the movies and you bought it and just being the way that i am i wanted to buy everything and horror movies were they were accessible, but if you had the money. And so uh, my grandma had the money, luckily. And every time I visit her, she would always buy me a movie. It was just the thing. And yes, I, I tell people, you know, I went outside and I played and I did this kind of stuff. But for me, watching horror movies, just staying indoors, that was my deal, right? Those were my friends. I loved movies so much. I'm like the cable guy without the creep factor, as far as you know. But I can specifically remember this because it was so, I had never heard of the Amity of the Horror. Is never, you know, um, nowadays we have social media. I could talk to you about movies over a podcast. Everything's awesome. Back then, if you didn't have a friend who you personally knew who was into horror, you were the only person talking horror and you were the weird kid. So I was the weird kid. And we were standing in the checkout lane at a Kmart. All right. I can't even tell you last time I was in a Kmart, dude. There is no Kmarts within a three-hour <laughs> radius here. But we were standing yeah. there at the checkout. And I looked over. And on the end cap, they just had some random things. And I swear, there was the VHS double pack where it was the Amityville Horror 1 and 2 for like 10 bucks, And they weren't individual wow. sleeved. It was like one of those, like almost like when you see the It movie, you know how it holds both cassettes in there, but it's one box? This was an Amityville yeah. box. And oh, that's cool. it had that iconic cover where you see the glowing windows that represent kind of like satan eyes or something and it has george and kathleen lutz on the cover and dude i remember looking at it and okay dude it's a horror movie i'm already gonna get it but i started looking at it, I'm like, oh, it's like a haunted house movie i've never seen it it's two for one and i'm a sequel guy and i was back then too so i'm like you get part one and part two i am invested uh, hey grandma can i have this <laughs> and so i remember going <laughs> home dude and watching both of them that night and it totally took me by surprise because much like you were saying like it impressed me then and it still impresses me now yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that was a great find, though. I mean, yeah, that's probably something I would have bought, too, as a kid. I, yeah, I remember buying a couple of Ford VHSs and kind of, like, keeping them under my bed or whatever because my parents wouldn't really approve of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I got got old grandma to buy them for me, <laughs> Same as kind of same as you. But, Where some teenage uh, boys had uh, a certain pornography stash under their bed, Andy had the horror movies. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> awesome. yeah, I think we were. We would have been good friends as kids. I'm just saying. Oh yeah, we'd have been those friends who like swap VHS tapes. Hey, can I borrow Candyman? Sure. Can I borrow your Hellraiser? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Let's get into the setup of the film because this film hits the ground running pretty fast as it opens up with the grisly murders that take place. And dude, I got to be honest with you. You know, I saw this back then. I 
wore the crap out of it, right? But throughout my adult years, I've seen I've been watching so many new movies that I don't take time to go revisit old ones. And so when I was given this one the good old rewatch, I completely forgot about the way that this film opens up and it actually shows the family getting murdered. Yeah, it's interesting. Like it, it opens up with a thunderstorm, and uh, and yeah, and then we see like like in between the thunder claps, you hear the gunshots, and and it was they it starts off showing the outside of the house with the, with the windows look like eyes and the eyes kind of, the windows kind of light up whenever there's a gunshot and then it takes us inside and we just see somebody walking through the house with a shotgun you know you know shooting people so that it was really it was really an effective way to start the movie it just kind of puts you in that mindset of okay buckle in here we go you know <laughs> yeah and as a first time watch assuming you didn't read the book you don't know what's happening so you're like is the movie starting off with the ending? Like, is the main cast getting it right here? And that's exactly opposite of what's happening, where we're getting the backstory, because the whole deal is this adolescent son is carrying a shotgun, and he murders his parents and his siblings, and we just see them all laying dead in their beds. And then it switches to being outside, and, you know, he's been taken away or whatever, but we kind of get a little recap from the detective and everybody about what's going on. And you hear about everything you just saw and it starts to build up and you're thinking, okay, this is kind of the prelude. This is getting us into the main storyline. Now we see the events that happened in this house. That's a potentially going to be for sale. It's an interesting setup. And especially when you see the Lutzes go through, you know, do their walkthrough before they buy the house. And, and so you know that this house is like the house that's known in the neighborhood is probably I don't know if it's necessarily known as a haunted house, but it's you know known, known as that house where the murders happen, and probably nobody wants to touch it with a ten foot pole. And so this real estate agent, you know, she's like kind of hit the gold mine here with like probably the Lutzes are from out of town. They don't really I think they do know the history. It sounds like uh, they kind of mention it, but they don't really care. And so this real estate agent is like so I think. She, you know, it's like I wonder how many times that she's walked through this house to the people and like showed it, or maybe she, maybe this is the first couple that she's had that's actually been interested in. It. That's that'd be kind of interesting to explore. But you could tell she's really nervous as she's taken to the house. And I think actually in the remake from 2005, the real estate agent is a, portrays that nervous nervousness a lot more, and they kind of play it up a lot more in that version. Whereas in this version, it's not so apparent that she's actually nervous or expecting anything to happen but then like kind of as we see as it goes on like something does kind of happen and she gets freaked out and runs off so there probably is that in her mind of it maybe being a haunted house you know i don't so i don't know like how much of that urban legend would had taken hold as far as like is you know did people did the neighborhood think it was a haunted house or what or was it just kind of uh had a shadow over it because of the murders yeah for sure man i love that that point too because i would love to know if this is the 200th time she's shown the house or this is the first time anybody's walked in there in 13 months because i think this thing's been up for sale forever and dude i gotta say like i love like we didn't talk about it yet but i love this house like the aesthetic of the outside as well as the aesthetics on the inside this is a dream house for me but i love the situation we're presented with because there's always two opinions on it there's people who are like, wait, what happened? I would never live in that house. And then there's, and both of these are realistic, right? And then the other side, which is the side I'm definitely on, where it's like, hold on, you know, the murders happened. That was from a person. The house didn't kill anybody. That's all gone. 
and this is the deal of a lifetime. And they mention uh, in the trailer, we hear it's like, this is an $80,000 house, might as well be an $800,000 house. And I know eighty grand is a lot of money. In 1979, I didn't do the math, but we know that's a lot more than what it is today. But even so, just the size of the house, it has a boathouse, and it's on the lake. The price is definitely toned down so that somebody will just freaking buy it, and they can wash their hands of it. But at the same time, it's like the perfect opportunity for this large family that when you do some research, you find out that they've never lived together because the kids, you know, he's stepdad. Okay. And then we have Kathleen and George Lutz and then her three kids. And so this is the first time where they're going to actually live together in this big house. And so, you know, George, man, he wants to do the right thing. He wants to be the man in the house. He wants to take the right opportunity and provide. And he would be crazy to let this deal slip through his hands. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's that's what that's what he's looking at it from that angle, from a financial perspective. Like, hey, this is we're not going to find anything like this at this price level. So he's ready to jump on. And I think, you know, his his wife, she's a little more like, well, this does have kind of a weird history. But I guess, if you know, she's kind of like, well, George is OK. She just kind of goes along with it. She doesn't really give it a, a lot of thought, I don't think. But it was interesting that she did have the priest. She didn't want the priest to come by and bless the house, so she must have. That must have been something in her thinking. Maybe that was in the back of her mind, like she just wanted to try to like clear out any whatever you know bad juju or whatever it might have been in the house or something. <laughs> well, for sure, man, because that's something that I love about this movie, and, and it's something I wanted to ask you about too. Because what we're presented with is this scenario that I see is I don't know if it's a new trope. Maybe I mean they did it in '79. Maybe it's a common trope at this point, but. As they're unpacking, and yeah, you can tell, George, you know, he's always trying to be the voice of reason. You know, she brings up the idea that these murders happened here, and I don't really know about it. And he's like, where else are we going to get this kind of deal? We can do it. We're together. That's what matters. And so as the scenes go, and they're unpacking, and everything's kind of like a really great scene. Like, you really feel that at-home family vibe. You think things are going to get really good, and you start to think, like, had we not be watching a horror movie, this would just look like a very pleasant sequence. And as they're unpacking, that's when we find out just kind of how religious like she is, like what her standards are. She comes from a Catholic church background. She has a crucifix. And you start to realize, okay, so before George was kind of like, eh, you know, uh, don't worry about that stuff. And now she's like, hey, will you hang up this crucifix? And He's willing to do it for his wife, but he's, like, unimpressed. Like, he could care less. And so he goes and he just kind of hangs it on the wall. Andy, he didn't level it. He didn't center it. I'm just saying. He just throws it on the wall. He owns his own business. Come on. But I think that has a big part of what happens in this movie is, yes, she does have her concerns. So she calls a priest to come bless the house where he honestly could care less because he doesn't believe in anything. And I think that's why in this movie he is the one that's mostly affected who's within the home. His disbelief. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it allows him to be like susceptible. Yeah, it's like his unbelief is almost like his undoing or something. Right. It's like... No, sorry, yeah, man. Like that that goes on the poster, man. I'm just saying. <laughs> his unbelief will be his undoing, <laughs> the Amityville horror. Yeah, so like, and her belief is almost like a shield because she probably prays and like, you know, thinks about that kind of stuff more. And, you know, she has the crucifix. She probably has a rosary that she probably prays with and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see that being a factor in his, I don't know if you want to call it possession or whatever. Yeah. That whole aspect is kind of interesting, too. Like, 
you know, and I'm not really sure why it happens or what's the point of it, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to say the least. There's probably that common trait with the kid who shot up the house in the first place. Like, you know, how older teenagers, rebellious, all this, that, and the other, and slight spoiler, slight spoiler. You know, I wouldn't ruin you guys, but that's kind of what the Amityville Horror 2, the possession is about, and you realize a little bit more about the angst of the older teenager susceptible to heavy metal and Satan, and this goes on for decades, right? But I love this idea because what happens, okay, they're unpacking, and it's funny because you look at Kathleen, and who's played by Margot Kidder, and she's, you know, she's doing good, but she's like ripping wallpaper. Like, she is so frustrated at this point, and George just kind of looks at her and is like, you know what we need? She's like, to get a beer and go outside. In the next scene, they have beer and they're walking outside. And it's cool because the kids are outside. They're playing with Harry the dog. They're out by the lake. And that's when Father Delaney actually comes over to bless the house. And Andy, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's not welcome. No, definitely. This is like one of the most memorable sequences for me in the movie. Just like his experience within the house. It's really scary. I mean, just what happens to him. And we don't. And it's one of those scenes where there's not like really any special effects, or not a lot anyway. But it's really scary. I mean, just because they use like sound, um, and just kind of the, they really set the mood. This scene is made fun of <laughs> in a lot of horror movies, like Scary Movie Two and everything. But the priest is going through the house, and he's got the crucifix, and he's blessing the house, and he goes upstairs because he thinks he hears children laughing, and he hears it, but it's not really happening. And he goes up to, into the room. And when he's in there, we notice the iconic scene of the bees on the window. Yeah, I think they're actually flies, right? Uh, oh, you're right. They are flies. Look, I'm trying to make it more intense, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And they're so. they're colliding, and they're filling up the window. And then, Andy, is the window, like, open at some point or something? Because the flies get into the room. You know what? He, I actually do remember this. He tries to open the window, and he can't. It's, like, stuck or something. Because okay. I remember him trying to open it because he because he sees the family down below in the yard playing around and stuff so i think he wants to open it to let him know hey i'm here but he can't get it open and so i think at that point he's like well i'm inside i'm just going to go ahead with the the blessing okay that makes more sense good call but dude just the amount of flies and the close-ups of the flies there's some pretty cool cinematography throughout this movie but something as simple of okay what so there's flies that's not scary but you know what they made it scary. Yeah, maybe one or two flies on a window is not a big deal. But when you see this mass of flies just covering the window almost to the point where, like, you know, it's just like you can't see any daylight through them, that's really freaky. I mean, especially, like, it's all moving. It's like this black mass is just, like, moving over the window. It's just really eerie. What else is eerie is when he's in that room in the door, because the door slams shut and he's trapped in there. And now that he's covered with flies, the door opens up slowly and you get that, and then you just hear, get out. And I had forgot that a devilish voice actually screams at the priest and tells him to get out of the house. That is the the thing that I remember the most is just that voice. I mean, it, I don't know what they did with it. If it was somebody like, if there was any kind of distortion at it or whatever, but man, that voice is really freaky. It's because you don't see where it's coming from. It's like, it's just the house right. telling them to get out, you know. Yeah. The house has a life of its own, man. And this is an ongoing thing with the priest because he leaves. I mean, the house screams, get out. He runs like hell, right? He gets out, but he continuously has issues. And I love that's what you said about how 
it affects everybody because it's not the horror is not contained within the home it affects anybody that enters the home and so even though he's able to escape the house um, definitely not unscathed but he continuously has issues so much so that he's making phone calls to try to warn them to the point where they thought he didn't even show up but every time he tries to call they're getting this immense static on the phone yeah, it's like the house is really working hard to prevent him from like warning them, or whatever. Any type of like religious like clergy that enters the house like, just immediately gets sick. Like even her aunt, that's a nun, she like she walked in and said, "I have to leave." I, I mean, she like drove off and like got sick around the corner or whatever. So yeah, that that was that was an interesting point. Like this house just really took an aggressive stance against any kind of religious people coming into the house, even though Kathleen was religious, but I guess she didn't really have the power to do anything about it. So the house didn't seem to be concerned with her so much. Yeah. It almost used her as the victim to everything. They let everything with a more dominant presence kind of intensify. Uh, like you said, uh, go against anything that opposed as a threat. However, we know that through the course of the movie, Kathleen does slowly experience the nightmares, at least. But the nightmares is about her husband, George, who's definitely affected by it. And that's something I want to get into right now, man, because the transformation, like, okay, when we meet George Lutz, yes, he's a good guy. You could tell he cares because he makes little things like, man, I wish they'd call me dad, you know, and you're like, oh, that's sweet. Okay, but he's not the Brady Bunch kind of dad. Okay, there's definitely a subtle sense of masculinity to him and things but it starts to amplify throughout the movie because throughout this entire movie this dude is annihilating blocks of wood yeah it's interesting he like as the movie goes on he just has this obsession with chopping wood and and especially with like keeping the fire going in the fireplace and he just keeps saying how it's so cold and stuff and that's that's kind of interesting like it's just kind of a sign that something is happening to him so so we as an audience you know kind of see that progression and but yeah, it's just it's just one of those disturbing elements, especially seeing him with an axe like chopping wood. You just kind of like think, okay, what's going to happen with him and that axe? You know, just it's kind of like a foreshadowing, I guess. It is, man. And you talked about things that you definitely remembered. I had two big memories from this movie, and one of them was the his transformation, the way that. Like, I don't remember much about this movie, but I remember George, the main character, and how he's always cold to the and he's the dude is wearing a sweatshirt outside chopping wood, sweating heavily at the armpits while other people are in like shorts and a flower dress. You know what I mean? With each passing day, George is losing touch with who he really is. And we got to talk about that fireplace, dude, because I don't know about you, but <laughs> I was wondering at some point if Kathleen was going to become the blocks of wood and tossed into the fireplace. Yeah. You're kind of like, Oh no, is this going to kind of go down the same route as before? And so you're, you always have that kind of like that sinking feeling in your gut, like oh boy, like when you know you so you're just kind of like anticipating something bad really happening with his family as the movie goes on. Yeah, and we definitely almost get there. And I love that you bring up the aunt because I at first I was like, wait, her aunt's a nun. That's convenient writing. But the more I thought about it, I liked it because it proved and provided that Catholic background that Kathleen comes from and explains why she is so heavily involved in it is because that clearly was her upbringing so much so that family members are nuns of the church. 
Yeah, definitely. It just, yeah, like you said, it just reinforces her Catholic background and to the point where, like, George's business partner and his business is uh, aware of the fact that she's very religious because he makes a comment of, like, once he got married, he changed his religion, you know. So it was like other people actually kind of really noticed the change, too, like, once George kind of got involved with this family. The writing was really good in this movie because it really gives you a sense of who these people are, gives you some depth to them. Yeah, dude. And we have to talk about his transformation, yes, but it's accompanied by the fact that he wakes up every morning at 3.15 a.m. to these nightmares and strange sounds that he hears within the house and within the boathouse. And the guy, throughout the rest of the movie, not only is he always dressed warmly, but you notice how he, oh, his eyes are starting to be red. Like, if you told me that the actor who plays George, who is James Brolin, basically like starved himself of sleep to make this movie i would have believed you because the dude looks insanely exhausted and bothered throughout the course of the film oh yeah like yeah his acting was great and like i guess you know whatever makeup effects they used were very realistic i mean yeah i, I just i like i'm like you i believe that he like he's like spent up for a, a few days without any sleep and um and that's one of the things about this movie is it takes place over a kind of relatively short period of time well i mean i guess compared to some movies take place over like one night or whatever but like this movie kind of has like a definite timeline so you know that this this movie takes place over like what it's like a month days, or something right? like that yeah yeah so so we definitely have that timeline going so we kind of know how long it's been and stuff so that so that kind of gives you uh another sense of realism at, with it too yeah i mean everybody did a really good job as far as the acting for rod steiger margot kidder and and James Brolin, I mean, they all did really good. So, yeah, kudos to them, and like kudos to the direction of the movie. You know, something I wanted to mention, kind of, you you mentioned uh, the cinematography earlier, and I think that is one of the the main things that makes this so scary is because the cam- because of the camera work. I mean, this really makes you feel like this family is being watched like all the time. Like the way the camera moves around, the way you get some of these POV shots. It just really makes it makes it feel like the house is watching them at all the times. It really makes you feel like the house is a character as well, you know, within this story. Uh, you mentioned that George kept going to the boathouse, and I and I noticed that too during the movie. I was wondering, what is it with this boathouse? Did you catch on to what was going on with that? No, and I there's something else I want to bring up too between this one and the remake because they do a lot of that in the remake too. And there's so many scenes that happened in this movie that I thought were made up for the remake and so to watch this and realize wait this did happen in the original movie blew my mind and the boathouse was one of them i remember there being a boathouse but i didn't recall until seeing it again the amount of times that he grabs an axe or he takes harry the dog and goes out to the boathouse to look around i mean i would have been shocked or or would not have been shocked i guess if there had been like bodies in the boathouse or something but i don't remember at least in this movie, if they really signify what it meant. Yeah, maybe that's something they talk more about in the not in the book. I can't remember, but uh, that, that probably is something that came from the book, and it probably for whatever reason they they didn't really flush it out or whatever. Well, they you didn't know what really it is, explain. Andy is um, the teenage son rebelled against the family, and so he went out to the boathouse to smoke weed and listen to Iron Maiden. That has to be what it is. And so George now, oh, yeah. he's, he smells it, and he wants to go out there and figure out where this is growing. And so he's hanging out in the boathouse, you know, he wants to throw up the tunes, and uh, things are happening. <laughs> I thought I smelled something over yeah, here. Yeah, for sure. 
But we got to stick with the odd occurrences because waking up at 3.15 a.m. is not the oddest of odd things here because we have to talk about the babysitter. And this is a scene that I forgot about. And I noticed that, yes, I keep saying that a lot. But I did, dude. When I saw the remake in theater... And they did the whole babysitter getting locked in the closet thing. I had no recollection of that from the original. So how crazy is it that we have the babysitter and she is attending to Amy. And we got to talk about Amy's imaginary friend Jody and the whole sequence of everything that conjures up to the fact that the babysitter, like anybody else, doesn't believe Amy having an imaginary friend, right? Where the parents are submissive and like, oh, okay, what does their imaginary friend look like? What do they say? Where Amy's like, you need to go to bed and I don't really care. And so the imaginary friend takes it out on Amy. Yeah, for sure. And this scene was so was really scary. I mean, even the acting of the daughter, you know, the little girls, was really good. And, you know, just like the things that she says about Jody, her friend, and the dynamic between the babysitter and the, and the daughter was was displayed really well. Just kind of like the tension there. You know, the babysitter is trying to get the daughter to go to bed. The daughter doesn't want to go to bed. She says her friend doesn't like her. I can't remember. But anyway, so like, yeah, so then the uh, babysitter goes in the closet and all of a sudden the door just shuts and she can't get it open. And she's like screaming and screaming for the daughter to let her out. But she doesn't. She just sits on the bed and kind of... Yeah. I can't remember if she's like smiling or, or what, but uh, there's some creepy stuff going on there with the daughter and that and her imaginary friend for sure. But yeah, that scene with the babysitter in the closet, like she's like scratching on the door so much that her hands are bleeding. Yes. And then like the then the light goes out and then she starts really screaming. And I thought that was really cool because you don't know what's going. You don't know if something's going on in the closet with her. Like if something's attacking her or what. You just hear her screaming. That was a really effective scene, especially to show what the spirits of the house can do to somebody if they really want to. Yeah, dude. And I think it's open to interpretation because at first I'm like, okay, boohoo. You got locked in the closet. Get, just get out, kick the door open, do what you gotta do, pull it open, yell at Amy to open it. But for some reason, and even as an adult, things change when it gets dark, right? Like when things go pitch black dark, it opens up the door to your imagination and the light burns out. And then there's a spit of silence and then a, a gurgling scream from her. And it could be one of two things. One, this is now even more terrifying because it's dark and now she's wondering what's going to happen. Or like you said, who knows? Like the camera switches back out into the bedroom. We just hear the screams and know she's in the dark. Clo- like what if Jody like grabbed her or something? I mean, that that amplifies the terror so much in there. And so much so that and I love that you talk about the dynamic between the babysitter and Amy because when the parents come home they're the ones that have to let Amy out and they're like the door's not locked like they're able to just twist it and open it up so you and I know what's going on and I think Amy knows what's going on but when that babysitter comes out she immediately like I'm thinking if I had been locked in there in her position, 13, 14 years old, whatever the case is, that door opens, dude, I'm darting out. I'm just running out of the house. But no, she runs and tackles Amy, who's on the bed, and starts shaking or screaming to the mom has to pull her off. That was an interesting reaction. Like, yeah, she was mad because I think for a certain part of it, the babysitter thought that the girl was just playing a joke on her or a prank that kind of went too far. She was the friend that wouldn't rescue her. (laughs) So he (laughs) left me out to dry. 
But dude, yeah, throughout this movie, we don't really see Jody, but we are aware of Jody's presence because there's a rocking chair that moves. And some of the scenes were very Annabelle-ish. And I love bringing that up for certain reasons, but I won't say yet because some people haven't seen enough movies. Julie, we're going to get there. But (laughs) I love the idea of the imaginary friend. It's so creepy. But I got to say, I was thrown off yet again on a scene where the mom looks out the window and we see those glowing red eyes because that's supposed to be Jody. Oh, yeah. That was another one of those scenes that really... That I remember, like, from seeing it when I was younger, that was really scary. I mean, and that's one of the few scenes where you actually see, like, a ghost or something or, you know, a hint of a ghost even. It's just those red eyes. And you, I think you kind of hear some pig noises, too, or something. That was really, that was a really creepy scene. I, I like that one a lot. Great call out. We're going to get back to the pig thing here in a minute. But before we do, uh, we talk about George and how every day he's getting crazier and crazier. So much so that you mentioned that, like, people from his work are coming out to see him. And it's because George is, like, he's losing track of the days. He's not getting the payroll done. And his coworker, I really like as a character because he's a friend and he's taking severe interest in George's life and you get that feeling that they've been friends for a long time and this is when we we definitely split up our characters but because we have George who is gone off the deep end and Kathleen who is just ultimately trying to do whatever it takes to save her family she's trying to get a hold of the priest she's calling different priest she's trying to do whatever she can through the church but also so much so that she takes herself to the library to do more research right and remember back in the day you couldn't get on the internet you had to go to the library and it's so cool i don't know about you man but i never got to go to the library because when i did there was still kind of the old computer where in this one it was like scrolling to see the newspaper clippings and I, i thought that was a really cool reminder of how it was in the 70s but she sees more about the murders and that's when we see a striking resemblance between the guy that killed her family and George. Oh yeah. That scene, like she sees that newspaper article, that picture of the DeFeo boy. And it's just like, boom, it's like, there's George. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Yeah. So it, it really kind of like this really, it brings it home to her that, okay, something is not right. I think it's that point where she's like, okay, we, we just need to get out of this house. <laughs> She's had no help from the church, and that's not to speak negatively on the church or what's happening, but I want to go ahead and I want to input, I usually don't do this, but I want to input this scene because this was something you and I talked about before recording, and we thought it was a cool idea because we both love the dialogue of it, but this is the scene where Father Delaney is begging to get this family some help. We're not in the habit of blaming Satan for every phenomenon. Neither am I, Father. Well, for a modernist, who thought Vatican II didn't go far enough. Don't you think you sound a little medieval? My being a modernist has nothing to do with it. I happened to check into the murders, and I checked into the 20-year-old boy who killed his parents and his four brothers and sisters. And when he was at trial, he testified that he heard voices in the house. He heard voices in the house, and the voices told him to do it. Now, I was in the house, and I heard the voices too. And I also felt a presence in the house. I'm telling you, there was a presence in that house. Half the killers in this country say the same thing. The voices. The voices told me to do it. I heard them, Father. I heard voices. Then then explain this. Explain my hand if you can do that. Go on. Explain how the car went out of control. Go on. Father Polo was with me. You tell him. Well, the, the wheel locked and then the... The wheel locked. 
how about a mechanical defect? I'd blame Detroit a lot faster than the devil. Seems like every month there's some kind of recall. Oh. I see. <laughs> We're just going to walk away from it. Well, has that become the fashion now to cover up? Nothing to walk away from. Well, I think it's nonsense. There's nothing to cover up. Well, I think it's bureaucratical bullshit. What do you think I am? I am not some pink cheek seminarian who doesn't know the difference between the supernatural and a bad clam. I am a trained psychotherapist. I went into that house. And what I saw there was real. What I felt there was real. And what I heard there was real. Now, gentlemen, I have a family in my parish that's at great risk. And they are facing real danger. Who the hell do you think you are? You think your secular education gives you the right to question the church? Sit down. Sit Now, you haven't told us one thing that can't be written off as simple hysteria. Even psychotherapists lose touch with reality sometimes. Your education doesn't give you any immunity. Father Nunzio and I have seen our share of phenomena, and never once did any of them turn out to be Satanist. Let's understand each other, Father. To me, the church, it's my home. The church is my strain. And I need her now. And that family needs her now. has it been since you've seen your family? What do you mean? We think you should take a vacation. throughout the course of the movie we're not really getting through to everybody um it seems like there is a line between belief and disbelief and this is something that gets explained throughout the course of many franchises including like i said before a lot of the conjuring stuff and a lot of the amityville stuff later of the separation between fact and fiction is it haunting or is it coincidence and i love that they want to explore that but there's a point where you got to be able to take somebody's word for it because I think even though James Brolin did an amazing job, I was just taken by the amazing job that Rod Steiger did as the priest in this film, dude, because he sold me on it. I'm like, if I didn't see this movie, but he came to me with that, yep, <laughs> this house is haunted. I'm taking your word for it. But she doesn't get that kind of help, even so much so that... Father Delaney, he's in the church, 
and he's had a one-on-one with, I forgot the other priest's name, I should have wrote it down, but is it Bolin? I think Father Bolin was right, and he was like... The, the younger guy? Yes, the younger guy. He said he had like World yeah. War experience, or not World War, that's stupid. He had uh, some war, pre- pre- maybe Vietnam, what it was. Yeah. But basically, he's like, I've seen real horror, and it comes from within ourselves, in that we give ourselves these fears, and there's no room to argue that. Like, that's 100% true, I could only imagine, but... To still dismiss Father Delaney so, to this point where he's in the church. You remember this scene here where he's like praying and screaming above that like pieces of the church are like crumbling and falling and breaking, but it's only through his eyes that he sees it. Exactly, yeah. Because when after that whole scene is done, like the camera shows the statue again and it's like it's fine, it's not broken at all. That was a really creepy scene. I mean, not necessarily creepy, but that was a really tense scene because you could just feel. You know, and all credit to Rod Steiger, you could just feel the the battle. He's having this like spiritual battle, you know, this like battle. He's battling something that we can't necessarily see, but he 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 read, definitely brings it, you know, in the scene and with his acting and stuff. And we just know that he's having like the fight of his life right here. And yeah, it was, it was a great scene. And it's interesting, like just you know, the whole scenes between him and the other priests and stuff, and how they like the difference of belief. You know, you have. I think that they were surprised, like the the church authority that he was talking to was surprised that he was this uh, convinced that there was some kind of spiritual thing going on in the Lutz house because they were saying that, like, they were kind of making the comment that he's very pragmatic, like he's very, like, down to earth and stuff. And so I think they were kind of throwing, throwing it back a little bit that he was, like, saying, oh, no, this house is possessed or whatever. We need to do an exorcism on the house. We kind of dive into that in part two. I love it so much. Um, I think you and I have talked a lot about this because on Black Cat Shadow, we did the whole exorcism chat, and we always talk behind the scenes about these um, exorcism and possession movies. But this is where a lot of my love lies for movies where if it's not classic horror, I love the religion horror just because I have my beliefs, you have your beliefs, but when you're watching a horror movie, we see both sides of the stick with this and it's so interesting to see how it's always interweaving through because the church is so easy to put it off like you said like that's a mechanical thing and it just kind of represents fear of some folks who they have to really be convinced that it's something supernatural or true evil going on because they always want to suspend disbelief or make up a a more believable reason of why things are happening and sometimes especially in this kind of movie it's what you don't see. I mean, it's something that nobody can comprehend unless they've been through it. And you literally see the breakdown of Delaney so much so that dude, what, I mean, I may be looking too far into it. I don't know if it's explained in the book, but remember when he picks up the phone and like burns welts on his hands. So now he's in the church, his hands are bandaged up. Like you're getting this like stigmata vibe going on. Like he's playing with fire at this point. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about the stigmata thing, but yeah, no, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. The, the house it's interesting to see how far the the house's power can reach. Like it can go all the way to where Delaney is and burn his hand while he's on the phone. So it just it just really they really do a good job of showing how powerful this force is or whatever. And then the nice thing is we do get somewhat of an explanation about what is going on in the house. Well, I like that. You know, with the business partner's wife, she comes to the house and she's like almost like excited. Well, there's a there's a scene earlier where they drive up to the house. And she doesn't want to step foot in the house at all. But then later on, 
there's a different scene where they drive up to the house and this time she's excited about the house for some reason. So I don't know how I don't know understand what the mood change there is, but then like through her, she has some kind of like sensitive abilities, like psychic abilities. Almost like whatever. a clairvoyant in a sense. Yeah, yeah. So through her we kinda get this like exposition about what's going on with the house, why it is like it is. So that that was interesting. I, I appreciated that they threw that in there. And this was the scene that I thought was made up. Out of the whole movie, I thought this whole sequence didn't exist in the original. I remember seeing the 2005 Ryan Reynolds remake, and when they went here, I thought they fucked it up. I was like, oh man, they added this in here? This is so typical, because through the course of movies, you have heard the term, oh, this is built on a burial ground, but it did in, in fact exist in this, in this movie. <laughs> and so we find out the house is built on this Shinecock burial ground, which is an Indian reservation in the uh, Southampton, Suffolk County of New York. But it's a thing, and the house was built by this dude named John Ketchum, who was a satanic worshiper. And when I was watching this with Julie the other day, it was her first watch, it was my rewatch, and my mouth, like, she looked at me because my jaw dropped, and I'm like, this was in here. <laughs> so <laughs> I felt embarrassed because I'm pretty sure somewhere on a podcast I had talked about the remake, and I'm like, I hated all the stuff they added in, and now I feel stupid because it was in the 79 one. And do you remember, I'm sure it was, but was this stuff in the book, the whole explanation of the burial ground, satanic worshiper, and the reason for the house to be evil, or do you think that was screenplay? You know, I... I'm thinking it was, okay. but I, I don't. It's it's been probably ten over ten years since I read the book, but okay. I don't remember exactly. I, I just remember little bits and pieces of the book. I want to ask you a question. Um, yeah. What do you think about it? Do you like it, love it, or hate it? I think it's interesting. It just kind of adds to the mythology behind the house. I I, I love things like that. So okay. I, I know there's I know like there's certain people that don't want an explanation to the evil. Right. They just want it to be like an unknown or a mystery, but. I kind of like the explanation for me just kind of it just adds more to the to the world building here you know and and to the mythology behind it I I enjoy it I kind of view it as like the Michael Myers thing in Halloween where some people like the thoughtless boogeyman killer but then we go into like extreme detail and depth of why he's a killer and some people were turned off by it and maybe that's just if the reason isn't defining enough or it doesn't fulfill enough but I'm kind of like you I and that's probably why I'm a sequel guy too I like the the diving into certain things. And again, I think you and I need to get together and, and write a script about just the realtor <laughs> for the Amityville Horror. Like, what has she been through? <laughs> yeah. But watching this almost for the first time again, dude, because it had been so long, was blown away that the explanation was there and it made me appreciate it even more. So I'm with you here and we got to talk about the buildup of what this is all coming down to because we get into the final act of the film where it's so important that Harry the dog consistently is going into the basement and digging because he senses something going on and now our girlfriend our clairvoyant girlfriend she goes downstairs and she senses it and she's like there's something here and she starts hitting this wall and it gets george's attention because i'm th dude i didn't know what he was gonna do i was like oh he's about to kill her you're messing up my house because she is tearing up this <laughs> rock and he goes down there yeah. and he like puts his hand on the wall and he's like you're right, there's something here. Yeah, I guess, I don't know if he feels like a draft coming through the, because she kind of made a little hole or something when she was hitting it, so I don't know if like he felt, because he kind of put his hand up to the hole, and it's like, yeah, there's something. So then he proceeds to knock the wall the, the rest of the way down. Yeah, and then we get this, like, they don't really show it at that point. They don't show what, they just show, like, red walls and, like, kind of smoke billowing out or something. Then the psychic, her voice just changes, and that's that was a really scary scene. 
go through here. Yeah, dude, you're right, because this was something that I had forgot existed, thought was in the remake, but then when we were watching it, I was like, oh, but they didn't show much of it, where in the remake, they show a lot of it. Like, they go in there and explore it, and I won't ruin too much in there of what you find, but... Again, it adds up to the tension and it builds up to, okay, I guess if we ever wanted or needed an explanation to why George is crazy, the vibes that he's possessed by, why the house is evil, this would be it. I mean, when people are killed and sacrificed and all these satanic rituals are going on, that's going to stir up, like you said, bad JoJo, which I love because that's one of my favorite terminologies, man. But this gets us to the point where, yes, there is a hidden room in here and it's filled with God knows what, but the house starts oozing and bleeding blood, dude, down the walls and down the staircase to the point where George turns into a psychopath with an axe who is breaking down a bathroom door before The Shining was a film. I don't know which book came out first, but he would have been like, here's George instead of here's Johnny. But his spirits are broken down when his wife Kathy comes to the rescue. Yeah, I, I definitely saw those that those connections to The Shining. I was like, oh, wow, this is... And so, yeah, I don't know if like one influenced the other or whatever, but this was uh, really uh, kind of everything was coming to a head. You know, George was just acting crazier and crazier, and the family just kind of falling apart. So, yeah, it, they did a good job of just really bringing out the drama, you know, within this family. Not even, like, so much... I mean, it was the house causing it, but... I think that one of the most impactful things was just like the the turmoil within the family. You saw like this escalation of like kind of like domestic violence and stuff like that. And so it was, it was really effective. I mean, then you have all the haunted stuff kind of on top of it all, you know, too. But and I guess, you know, that's kind of causing everything at the same time. At this point, they realize that the only thing they need is each other, right? The most important thing is the bond of the family. Everybody's safe. Do what you can. Get out now, right? Leave everything behind. So they run out. They load up in their vehicle, and they get about halfway down the street. And, oh, wait, (laughs) we forgot the dog, Harry. And I like this scene. I know some people might have kept driving. Uh, We definitely have our animal lovers out there, but... It's the daughter who's, like, you can see so, like, we need Harry, and George is George now, and so he's sympathetic to the daughter, and she smiles, dude. Like, when he runs back for the dog, you can see this this emotion in her that's almost like, that's my dad right there. Like, she's like, accepts him, loves him, but he does that for her, and, and yeah, he didn't have to, right? But he runs back in the house, and of course, like I mentioned before, the dog is obsessed with the basement. So he goes to the stairs, and dude, what happens? He goes crashing through the basement stairs, and he falls into this giant puddle of what I thought was blood. But on this rewatch, it's just this pit of black tar or liquid. And I'm curious, what did you think it was? Do you think it was blood or something else? Yeah, I don't know. Because, you know, the the psychic was saying it was like a gateway to hell. So I don't know if it was supposed to be like blood or just like because, you know, she'd also mentioned that like through the history of the place that 
it was kind of, it was like an Indian burial ground. So I don't know if it was like a, supposed to be kind of like a mass grave or something there. And he like fell into just like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, soil. Right. It's weird, yeah, dude. But, uh, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't have any idea what it was. It was just like black something, black liquid that he fell into, which, which is a pretty cool scene. He fell into a, bile of oil <laughs> but yeah when he comes <laughs> out dude like he looks menacing as hell to the point where the dog doesn't even recognize him or at least senses the evil that's in the blood or whatever it is and he's like biting at him at first and i'm thinking oh shit this sucks like the dog is gonna attack him he's gonna have to kill the dog but luckily he's like no harry it's me you know he takes the bites he deals with it but the dog finally grabs him on the sleeve and helps pull him out of that hole and the house is immensely bleeding and so doors are slamming opening you think they're not gonna be able to get out Finally, he decides to crash a window and get out and take the dog, and they load up in the van, and they drive away, and this is our final scene, because it ends with the print on the screen that says, George and Kathleen Lutz and their family never reclaim their house or their personal belongings, and today they live in another state. And that's it. That's the end. And I'm curious, like, how did you feel about the ending? Yeah, it definitely was abrupt, but I I mean, I think it was probably appropriate just because they didn't want to, like... They wanted to leave you on that kind of like high note, you know. They didn't want to like have like a a scene where it's like everything's kind of they're like happy again or whatever. They wanted you to just like they just like cut it off, like okay, we're getting where everything's like in disarray and very dramatic. We're just gonna end it there and kind of leave you with that kind of unsettling feeling. And I liked how like they showed the so at the end of the movie they showed the shot of the house and then it pans down to the the rain falling down into the ground. And that's exactly how the movie starts at the beginning with a thunderstorm, oh. you know, before the DeFeo family is murdered. They, it's, it's, so it's like the same shot that starts yeah. the movie is the same shot that ends the movie. Too. I thought that was really cool. When it rains, the blood pours, right? That's so awesome because, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was, man. He was about to murder his family with an axe. So it's like that when that storm happens, it's commemorating the slaughter of a new family. So how many people were killed in there? I don't know. But, dude... When I saw this movie and it ended that way, I was like, I could totally see how this is a made-for-TV movie with this kind of ending. Oh, yeah, with like the little summary of the, yeah. the words on the screen. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder how that went in theater, but I'm going to assume it went pretty well because this movie was a major financial success. Like It was made on a $4.7 million budget that, again, 1979 brought in $86.4 million and spawned off the most insane library of horror films ever. But let's talk overall opinions, man. I want to know, what are your final thoughts on the movie, and would you recommend it? I would say, like, so if there's people that have seen the remake from 2005, but I haven't seen this one, I would say, like, in the 2005 remake, they show they actually show the ghosts and stuff, and they and you see that that's more in your face. Whereas this one, they don't really show any ghosts. They show like there's a couple of scenes where you see glimpses of like the pig face or whatever, like the eyes and stuff. This one is more. It's just more 70s. I don't know like how to explain it, but it's like it's just it just feels more real. There's that that feeling of realism, like this could actually happen, or this might be what a haunted house actually feels like. So I would say this is, I mean, from the acting, the cinematography is like plays a crucial role in the the sound design with the voices and just what special. They don't have a lot of special effects, but what they do have, they really put to good use. I mean, they use it very sparingly. And so I think I would, this is definitely a recommend for me. This is one of those 70s horror classics. It's, it's right up there with like The Exorcist and The Omen. 
you know, there's not like there's not like a bunch of kills in this movie or anything. It's just it's just kind of like a family being terrorized and and but it's very scary to me. So it's definitely this is definitely a recommend if anybody likes haunted house movies, especially anybody that likes like seventies horror, you definitely should check this out. I don't know. I'd be interested to see what like a younger person watching it would think if they would think it's boring or something like that. But I don't know. But I definitely would say it's a recommend. Yeah, minus the slight scene of nudity that we get, I would say this is a great gateway horror movie. Like you mentioned, a younger person, like you're trying to get into horror or get your kids into horror or whatever it is. This was a good one to show people. I'm with you. I do recommend it. I think it holds up. I know movies today are a lot more in your face and a lot more jump scares, but this movie definitely danced that idea before a lot of other people were doing it. And it seems to be relatively true or close to the stories that we know. And I love that you bring up the pig thing because I never put two and two together of what the hell that was. And so the idea is like I mentioned before, like that was supposed to represent Jody. And yes, it is a pig form. And uh, Julie actually called it out before I did. I was just like, it's a demon. You know, it's a pig. And I'm thinking, like, why is it a pig? Like, what's so scary about a pig? So I don't know if you know what you, like why pigs are scary. Yeah, I don't know. Like the only, the only thing that I that comes to mind when I think of pigs and like demons is in the Bible. There's a story about a man that's possessed with a bunch of like different you know demons or whatever, and like Jesus like basically casts them out of him and puts them in a herd of pigs. That's definitely what they, it is, dude. That fits so well. Yeah, so I, that that's the only correlation that I can come up with. No, we're leaving it there. That's perfect. <laughs> it's from the okay. Bible. You had me at hello. Um, now, we mentioned in the beginning, you said there was a scene that you wish would have been in the movie. So, like, at the end of the movie, when they're, like, picking up all the kids and just running out of the house as they're, like, leaving, like, in the movie, they kind of show where they're kind of looking back upstairs and stuff as they're walking down the stairs. And, but in the book, in this part, you know, George and Kat, they kind of look back and they they actually see, like, this figure like coming down the stairs after them like and it's like this figure with like a i think it was like a skull face like a but like in white like in a white robe or something it was really freaky sounding and that would have been a cool to cap off the movie just some something like you know to see something like that would have been kind of freaky but i'm sure there's a reason why they didn't put that in the movie yeah i mean it would have been like the one time they showed something chasing them so it might have been out of context but I don't remember if that's done in the remake or not. Do you remember? I don't I don't think so. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, the uh, last question I have for you is how do you think this movie stands against the rest of the series? Like especially being the first one. This one and the second one are my favorite of the whole franchise of what I've seen. I've seen most of them. I haven't seen some of the later stuff. That's kind of like questionable whether it's canon or not, whatever, you know. I think Sure. You know that's that could be debated. So, yeah, it's a, I think it's a toss up between this one and the second one. These two are really, the first two are really strong movies. The second movie has more special effects, and they kind of really go for it a little bit more than this one does. That's the eighties, man. <laughs> yeah, the eighties. So, so do know, you think hard. this is it's, a I, good like first movie for this long franchise? Like, it's a great foot in the door for what and representation of what the Amityville horror is. Yeah, definitely. This is this is a, yeah. I think this is a really good perfect first movie for a franchise i mean you can even look at franchises like friday the 13th you know they kind of started off differently than where the franchise ultimately went 
seems like the first movie is they don't quite have all their ideas concrete yet of what they want to do with the well i mean in a lot of with a lot of these movies they don't expect them to become a franchise they're just making this movie hey we'll just make this movie make some money but then like then they see an opportunity like it does well in the box office so they see an opportunity hey we can make some money with this and so they go on with an expanded i love the way you say that because do you notice how different it is now so many movies fail because you can tell that they're reserved and they purposely come out with the idea of being a trilogy, right? Or we're going to start off this franchise and this is going to be our first movie where, yeah, even like the first Nightmare on Elm Street, they didn't intend on doing a second one. Like Wes Craven didn't even want there to be a second one. And same thing with Friday the 13th where you and I, we interviewed uh, the writer for Friday the 13th, Victor Miller, and it was like, no, that was just like an 80s slasher movie that I made about a kid and his mom. You know, like there wasn't supposed to be this whole thing. And, I just, oh man, I just love that because you're like they did it all right here. Like they put it in front of you, and this was supposed to be the impact. And if it made money, great. And if it didn't, this was our movie. And nowadays it's different. It's like okay, well, this is part one. We got other ideas for two and three and four. But the cool thing is, is it was successful and it did spawn many sequels. And yeah, I know a lot of people don't like them, and I know you've seen at least the better, what I call the better half of the franchise. <laughs> I've mentioned before, I live and die by this series. I don't know what it is. Something. Maybe it's the memories of getting the first ones at Kmart and then discovering the sequels throughout time where I got various tapes at pawn shops and whatnot. But I love this franchise, so I agree with you on every aspect of it's a great start to the series. I think everybody should give it a shot, especially if you've only seen the original, see where it all started. If you're trying to get into horror or get someone into horror, this is a good place to start. But I love that they didn't show too much and they just kind of put it out there for interpretation. And this is a movie that I will definitely revisit more in the future. Oh yeah, this this is definitely this is one I own personally, and this is one I'll watch. You know, at you know at least every couple of years. You know, it's 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 definitely a classic. It's right up there with some of my favorites. That's just kind of made an impact on me. You know, as far as like you know my love for horror. Yep, and if you guys out there want to see this movie or rewatch this movie, and you don't own it, it's available on Amazon Prime. You can check it out. Check out the episode, see what you think. Probably should have told you at the beginning, but that's how this thing happens sometimes. But Andy, dude, it's been so long since we recorded together. It was so great to get you back on here. Obviously, thank you for doing this. I know we have crazy schedules, so we both have to make time to do this here. But if people want to uh, reach out to you, because I mentioned you make really dope podcast music. And as far as I know, you're always up for hire and, and like taking on projects. So if people want to find you, where can they find you? Oh, thanks, Dave. Yeah, I, I had a blast on this episode, uh, so I appreciate you inviting me on. Um, yeah, if people want to follow w- what's going on with me, I don't post a lot on social media, but I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Black Cat Podcast, and I'm, you know, I'm on Instagram. But you can just look me up, Andy Ustry, U-S-S-E-R-Y, and I'll come up on there. And uh, But yeah, just hit me up. Uh, yeah, I love doing the podcast intros. I have a lot of fun doing that, and... Uh, I've done it for you know a few different podcasts, so maybe one of these days I'll get back into the podcast game. We'll see.
Thank you guys for listening to another bonus episode of the podcast from Another World. Don't forget to check out all the other podcasts that are available on the SIP network, the slightly regular podcast network. That includes From the Waste, uh, 5A from Fans, Paranormal Pativity, Angry Dad Podcast, Back in Time Podcast, the podcast from Another World, If You Like That, and the Terrible Terror Podcast. And uh, we'll hope to see you next time on an episode of the podcast from Another World. Keeping it short and sweet. Bye, guys. Take care of yourselves and each other.